Good morning. I'm Scott Warner, president of the Culinary Historians of Chicago. I say good morning, but with Anne is in London, so it's it's uh, dark now, right? It's around four four thirty in London in the afternoon. So, uh, and welcome to our Zoominar this morning on women in the kitchen, presented by one of today's most eminent women in the kitchen, Anne Willen. I call her Queen Anne of the kitchen. Anne, again, is coming to us live from her home in London. Uh, she, Anne is a queen of the culinary world, and she's in the same town as Queen Elizabeth. So, uh, And I'm coming to you today from Hyde Park, Chicago's Hyde Park, uh, not far from President Obama's home. So we've, we've got a lot of uh, power people uh, around us, and this should be a powerful presentation today. I believe this is the third time Anne has presented to our group during our 27 year history. Uh, and uh, I will tell you just briefly about Anne's background. Anne is the found, founded La Varenne Cooking School in Paris in 1975 and has written more than 30 books, including the double James Beard Award winning The Country Cooking of France, the Gourmand Award winning The Cookbook Library and the groundbreaking La Varenne Pratique as well as the Look and Cook series showcased on PBS. In 2013, she was inducted into the James Beard Foundation Awards Hall of Fame and serves as an emeritus advisor for the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. She divides her time between London and the South of France. And I find it funny looking at Anne in London. I mean, she's lived in the United States so long and she's an Amer has American citizenship, and I never think of her as being British. I just think of her as this, this American lady with this British accent. So again, it looks so foreign to me to see you in, in your native England. But, uh, um, and I'll, I'll tell you a few examples of my, my interactions with Anne over the years. I would attend a food writers conference at the Greenbrier Resort in West Virginia that Anne helped organize. And she, uh, Julia Child would always be there. And uh, Anne had me actually attend one of her Lavarin cooking classes at the Greenbrier. And one of these classes, well, um, she had Julia Child with her and Anne was giving a class on fish and Anne held up a piece of fish and she said, if it has black spots on it, don't use it because it's going to taste like crap. And, uh, and Julia piped up, she said, that sounds fishy to me. And in another class, Anne was talking about beans and she had a platter of beans all marked that she passed around. There were, there were adzuki beans and fava beans and, and uh, lima beans and a little part, part, part section of jelly beans. So, and that's the way Anne teaches classes. Oh, another thing about Anne and Julia, they were so close that they would bicker too uh, in public. And, uh, and somebody asked Anne at the class, what do you think of doggy bags? And Anne said, oh, she thought that was a terrible custom. And Julia piped up and she said, what's wrong with the doggy bag? It's good food. So she let Anne have it and Anne was laughing. But uh, anyway, I'll, I'll let Anne tell you about her close relationship with Julia because Anne is, uh, Julia is one of the 12 chefs, 12 cookbook authors mentioned in Anne's book, Women in the Kitchen. Uh, you'll find out more about that a little bit later. 
Anne will begin her savory program in a second. And after she serves up her culinary tale, I'll be asking her some questions. And then we'll open it up to chat questions from you, our audience. Uh, we'll tell you about that later. And, uh, and also let me do like for public television, like for PBS in Chicago, uh, we, we are now Zooming our programs. We used to do all our programs live and we would get revenue from our cookbook sales and from people paying to attend our meetings. But right now we're pro providing our programs for free uh, over for, with, with, uh, with Zoom programs. And if you'd like to become a member, we'd welcome you to become a member to help support our group. Uh, you can check our website, culinaryhistorians.org. And I think Kathy, who's helping host this program, will tell you about how you might become a member. If, if you're interested, we'd welcome that. So um, on, now let's get on with the show. And Anne, uh, if, if you like, come on down, as they say on, on, on TV, we, we welcome you to begin your presentation. Well, first of all, thank you very much for the invitation. It's nice to talk to the United States when here I am in London and it's just got black, dark. It's been a rather foggy day. Anyway, why women in the kitchen? And Scott, you gave me the kind of opening question. Why write a a book about women in the kitchen. And it all started uh, with a book about the history of cookbooks that I wrote, oh, five, 10 years ago. And I noticed that there was really no room to say much about women's cookbooks. And so I thought, ah, oh, I must come back to that. And so here I am back to that subject. And the first woman's cookbook, or rather cookbook um, written in English by a woman was called The Accomplished Lady's Delight. And that expresses instantly what it's all about. It was by a lady, that's to say uh, a woman who was sufficiently prosperous to be able to pay to have her book published. And she wrote a book about not only cooking, but the other things that were important for a woman as she displays in the frontispiece with her curls and her nice low um, neckline and her push-up bra. And she shows what um, in the kitchen an accomplished lady should be able to do. And you can see the lady um, getting right down into it, 
her hair is covered so that she doesn't get all the steam into her hair. But she does somehow. Is it really her in the little cartoons? Because she seems to keep her ringlets. In this frontispiece, you can see the kitchen, the early kitchens. There's um, a still room, that's to say a room for distilling, that's up here. Then she, I think, is probably um, scraping sugar from a, a cone, which was the form in which sugar arrived um, from Cyprus, a, a tall cone, and you had to grate it to get hold of the sugar. And then you go on, she's making little cakes. Uh, she's showing that you need both light and air in a kitchen. Then she's showing the English favorite, which is possibly pork, but certainly raised pies. And there she is in front cooking over an open fire. This is before the first raised stoves. And then we move on to Hannah Glass. Now she's a very famous name. Hannah Glass was um, in wide distribution in the States. She would uh, possibly, you might have found copies of Hannah Woolley, but you certainly, if you were a serious cook, male or female, you would have had a copy of Hannah Glass. And Hannah Glass uh, is a wonderfully romantic character who was an orphan who ran away from home um, with a penniless soldier. Uh, she, oh, she gave classes in London she went bankrupt and was thrown in jail. She wrote partly when she was in jail because she needed to raise money. She wrote um, this thousand recipe cookbook. And here you can see the, um, the different chapters. She um, was dressmaker to Princess Charlotte, who uh, was the heir to the throne. And I'm not sure if she ever actually ascended to the throne. Anyway, then the next cook, we come back to the States and all of the subsequent cooks in the book are American. This is the first book by, uh, this first book on American cookery by an American, Amelia Simmons. It's a charming little book. I have a facsimile here, but not just in front of me. But it's small, it has 
it's just over a hundred recipes. Many of them are only two or three lines. It's, as she states on the title page, by an orphan, a modest woman, clearly, but she's absolutely key to the history of American cooking. She is the first to use corn in things like flapjacks and corn puddings. She is the first to use pearl ash, she calls it, as a raising agent instead of yeast. She, um, that was not used in England until later. And that is basically um, ashes from the fire and leading to quick breads, which are classically American. Now we can go on to the next one. And here we have Mrs. Rundle. Here back in England, Mrs. Rundle um, wrote domestic cookery for her daughters. And this shows what she was aiming at. Here she's just looking at poultry, but she wanted this to be um, a solid, useful, general purpose cookbook that would cover all the things that her daughters needed to know and how to cope with the ingredients they might come across. By now, we're in the early 19th century, very, the, very early 19th century, um, and kitchen maids are dressed in frilly caps, and the kitchen shelves though you can, can't really see them here, had attractive molds for cooking cakes and molding jellies, which were very fashionable. Um, and the system of domestic cookery very soon became the standard text for a young housewife. And then we come back to the States. Now, Lydia Child was not a cook. She wrote about cooking, but Lydia Child um, was, uh, um, she was, a, I like to call her a crusader. She wrote children's books. She, um, she dominated her husband, who found her really a bit much. Um, and the couple went bankrupt as a result of, of um, his activities. What um, Lydia, oh, you, you Lydia, uh, um, oh a protagonist of Lydia Childs, speaking as 
oh, educated with one of those classic English educations, so you never even lose the accent. I found it myself instantly, slightly up in arms um, against Lydia Child. She was not really interested in cooking, but she was interested in people cooking the right way and using a kitchen correctly. And her sort of little portion of one of her books, the recipes, there are about 40 recipes and they're very good. So she was, I sort of feel rather reluctantly. She was like my teachers at school who were always telling you to do things you didn't awfully want to do, like tidying up your books and marshalling all your thoughts in an exact order. They were very good at that. Um, but Lydia Child's book is part of a much larger kind of volume on how to run a house. Uh, it was the first uh, book of its kind. It was in the 1830s. I don't in front of me have the exact dates. Um, but she, she was very much a leader of domestic uh, achievement and indeed political achievement in her case. And then we go on to one of my very favorites, which continues to be um, the go-to authority on the cooking of South Carolina, specifically of Charleston. Um, the date, it's in my picture, it's 1851, but I think that may be a second edition. And it's written by Sarah Rutledge, whose father was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. She was a grand dame. She didn't write her book in that sort of tone, um, but she epitomized the moneyed elegance of the South. And her recipes remain a, a, a shining example. She collected them from her friends and put them together in a book that went into many, many editions and is possibly, I think, still in print. And she's declared in her introduction a, ho a house is not a home, though inhabited, unless they preside over its daily meals, a spirit of order and a certain knowledge of the manner in which food is served. And that is important. So you can enjoy it. It must be on the right dish. 
and arranged in an appropriate way on the dish and served, of course, at the right temperature. And then, I'm not quite sure how I move on, but great. Now we're coming to the legendary Fanny Farmer. She has an English equivalent, Mrs. Beaton, who was writing about 25 years earlier. But Fanny was writing for exactly the same audience and with exactly the same purpose in mind. And that was to set out for a middle level household, prosperous but not wealthy in New England. The recipes and the background information that you would need to run a successful and appropriate household for a young married woman, an older dowager possibly. Um, she was very much a teacher. She opened the Boston um, cooking school. She was the one who started the typical, the indispensable American system of measurement of cups and tablespoons. The mother of level, level measurement she is. And my grandchildren, you've got the cup and you run your finger um, or your uh, fingers across the top to level the top of the measure. Nobody in Europe was doing that until much later. And that was because of Fanny. Um, she also uh, taught uh, catering, diet and food chemistry, nursing. She herself, um, had in, when she was younger, had serious health problems. And so nursing was of concern to her. Um, and of course, she taught practical cookery. And then we come a long way, really, in time, though not so many, many years. It's kind of 40 years, mid-30s, to Joy of Cooking and the Rombas. Now, it was Irma Romba, and here with her is her daughter. Um, and... Irma, almost everyone I bet who is listening at the moment has a copy of some edition or another of Joy of Cooking. It's still in print and still being updated. Mine is a fairly early edition of the early 1950s. But, and I have a facsimile 
of the original. Here's the original little book, but it's not a little book in content. Um, it has lots and lots of recipes. And as you see, a charming cover, which I think I'm right, but I was certainly wouldn't want to be quoted at this minute, um, may have been um, drawn by her daughter. But it's lovely. Just right size for a useful book in the kitchen, as there are the recipes. And here and there are really good jokes by Irma. I mean, things that are still amusing to read. She um, was the first really domestic book to cover the whole country. So Fanny Farmer had been writing, as indeed had all the Americans so far, for the East Coast, Northeast, not Northeast Coast, um, but for the East Coast, because we've got Charleston, Charleston in that, but mainly for Boston. And Irma was writing from the Middle West um, for the whole of America. And as a result, she has huge number of recipes and they stretch all over, really a ground breaker. And it's, um, oh, the original has been updated, but never replaced. There was an effort um, in the late, 1900s, about 25, 20 years ago, to um, <clears throat> follow the impetus of Joy of Cooking with the same title because it was the same publisher, um, but taking a really different approach. And it was not successful. Everybody wanted including Julia's child, who declared with great energy, we want the joy of the, she didn't say original, but the joy and joy of cooking. Then we come to Julia herself. I kind of hesitate to say anything about Julia because we all know her so well because we've seen her on our wonderful programs and feel we have a personal relationship with her. I myself did know her very well. She knew all our family. She came to stay with us in France. She was particularly fond of my daughter, Emma. Um, we cooked together often, which was not altogether easy because though we both did the same sort of dishes like coquelin, um, and we followed French methods, but Julia, no surprise, had her own way of doing things, and I had my way of doing things. And so we always had a great time, but they did occasionally have its moments, like when she 
turned the live crayfish, a couple of hundred of them, um, because Julia had decided quite rightly it would be fun at the Greenbrow, where we taught in West Virginia, to have live crayfish that they would get from um, down in Louisiana and duly they arrived. And they were very live. And um, they're these little um, shellfish that look like shrimp, but have these very lively claws when they're alive. And um, I had them in a great big bowl with a baking sheet on top so they couldn't escape. And Julia said, oh, she said, but you must castrate them. And, oh, well, you have to catch the little things one by one and take the middle flange of the tail, twist, and that poor things, I mean, awful, pulls out their intestine. And there were, there must have been 200. Anyway, it was memorable. I'm sure I handed it over eventually to one of, thank goodness, the many assistants that we had. Um, and we must have, I think, yes, we have Edna Lewis who is a wonderful, refreshing glimpse of a totally other world, of the countryside of West Virginia, of an amazing personality. She and Julia um, shared the same editor at Simon and & Schuster and Edna evokes um, a time and a place which is, oh, it's the 30s, 40s, into the 50s in Virginia, which is wonderfully evocative and simple, the essence of country cooking. And then we go overseas again, Marcella Hazan, Italy, takes us straight to Italy in the first book, absolutely insistent on the right ingredients, simple cooking, simplicity, is always the most difficult thing to echo, to reproduce. And Marcella was absolute master. She was quite cantankerous, but she was quite right. She had her standards. That was the way she did it. And then Alice Waters, who is still very much on the scene, and led the way or the return to gardens, fresh ingredients, raised, if possible, in your own backyard, the edible schoolyard, 
the she too was trained in France, but she brought French techniques back to California and used the essential simplicity of the what I also French trained would call the right way of doing things. That's to say, learn the scales as in music, then you can play the the you can play the music, the creations. And there she is in possibly her own garden, explaining the inspiration and possibly the, um, oh, certainly the shining example of simplicity. So, 12 different cooks. Sometimes very different ways of approaching things, but all with the same aim in mind of putting delicious food, presenting it the, the way that its um, creators intended and tasting delicious. And do I have some questions? I wanted to say something about the book. Uh, the, pro the profiles of the chefs are so insightful. Anne is such a wonderful writer. And, and the, as I said, the profs, you'll learn so much about these chefs from her profiles. The recipes are wonderful. This is something you'd want to cook from. I mean, it, is, it isn't like a cockle stew or something like that or something far off that you might not make. It's, it's about very practical recipes that Anne has adapted and uh, delicious recipes. And again, I told Anne, when, when I grow up, I want to write like she does. So I, I highly recommend it. But on to some questions. Um, how, how did you research this book? I mean, that's that's going way back into history. Uh, I, I know how you did, but let, let me hear you tell how, how you did the research for it. Well, I had the right husband. Yes. Who loved to eat and loved books. And he said, just before we were married, he said, if you're going to write about cooking, you must have cookbooks. And so we were living, or I was living in New York at the time, working for Gourmet Magazine. Um, this is in the 1960s. And he went down to see the legendary cookbook dealer, um, Eleanor Lowenstein who has written the definitive bibliography of American cookbooks. And Eleanor launched him into collecting American cookbooks, but, sorry, cookbooks in general. And Mark, wherever he went, and he traveled quite a lot because he was working for the World Bank, he would, this was long before the internet, he would um, look up 
cookbook stalls in the Yellow Pages. And so he started what is now the second best collection of cookbooks on the West Coast in the States. Um, the best is in San Diego, and um, ours is second and is held at the Getty Library. So anybody who's interested in cookbooks, um, you will find lots of the really old ones and the interesting ones at the Getty Library. There are about um, 200 before or, uh, Bria Savarin, which is 1830. He's a sort of, to me, a cut-off date. Um, I have some, but by no means all, of the books after that. I have kept mainly the facsimile books, and you can see... Can you see my books? No, you can't, but now you can. You can see a few of them. There we go. Um, and I got out just because, oh, where are they? It's nice to see, there we are. Two of the earliest books that Mark and I collected, which um, this is an 18 um, a 1530 copy of Platina de Honesta Voluptate et Valetudine um, in Latin, of course and italic script, um, and a very nice frontispiece. There we are. And most of the books, as I say, are at the Getty, but I couldn't resist keeping two of my favorites. This is um, Bartolomeo Scapi opera, this is a 1590 edition, but it's the same as the first edition, which was, uh, yes, 1596, um, as the, the first edition of 1570. It is in beautiful Renaissance Italic. It has hundreds and hundreds of recipes and is famous for its illustrations, which in this case um, are at the back of the book. Let me get myself organized to show you. Beautiful pictures of equipment that basically hasn't changed at all. There's a barbecue cauldron, there are the knives. And 
He shows a kitchen. He shows, you can see the pasta rolling pin, um, the ravioli cutter. You can see the pestle and mortar, um, the cauldron over the fire, the um, kitchen boy and the shield that's stopping him um, getting burned from the heat. He, this is for storing your knives. It's a bale of straw. Um, there's a window. The window's over here. So you get some, um, some air. There's running water. And this is the first illustration of a raised stove. That's to say the heat is raised. The arches are for storing your charcoal. And um, there's a grid on top. And there are the boiling pots with the steam rising from the pots. And as I say, that's 1590. Fascinating, isn't it? Yes. Nothing's changed that much. And then there are more of these. And then there's a lovely illustration. This is the outside the Sistine Chapel. And the guys carrying the hampers are taking food. The hampers are empty and the contents have been put set in front of the bishops that are tasting and inspecting the hampers to be sure there aren't secret messages. And on the other side of the hatch are the cardinals in the conclave electing a pope. Brings it all to life, doesn't it? Baron, I'll stop talking and let's have some questions. Um, you, I had just a few more questions for you. I had some questions about the recipes. Um, I did want to say this about you. Uh, I'll tell everyone I had the honor of writing a profile about Anne for the Oxford Encyclopedia of Food and Drink in America. And in doing that, yeah, that, I, I wrote that. Mm -hmm back for Andy Smith's, the editor, and some of the people uh, I spoke to to find out more about Anne are some of the most prominent cookbook authors uh, in, in, in the country, and they had studied at La Varenne, and mm -hmm. Anne helped train and change the way recipes are written. Uh, she helped train, like, editors from uh, Gourmet, right, from... Um, Oh, so many, what's Savour? I don't know, so many magazines uh, that they trained at Laverin. Um, they did. We had, um, which is not uncommon now, but was uncommon then, a trainee program where <clears throat> young people, they had to um, find themselves board and lodging. But... Um, they could come and help us run the classes and would learn from the chefs. And so quite a lot of people have started that way. And it was wonderful, of course, having 
um, young people who they needed to speak some French. But um, now many of the famous chefs um, have similar systems and will take foreigners, which was very uh, rare in the days that um, I was doing that in the early 1980s and on through until we closed in 2007. And that's uh, the way to learn. Well, the, the, like one of the people, prominent people I spoke to about you, Stephen Racklin, yes, the, yes. Barbecue, the barbecue guru, uh, he told me and others told me too, that you helped change the way recipes are written. Um, he, he did say that. Uh, he gave you credit for that. And somebody else told me that too, that, that they learned really how to write recipes beautifully. That, and th these people went on to educate the whole country with their recipes and their magazines and books. So uh, Anne should be one of the, own, the, one of the essential women. She should be the 13th one in her book. But uh, I, I, how, you, you, you have beautiful recipes. Your book is worth buying just to make the recipes from it. But how did you, how did you adapt these recipes? I mean, I can imagine some of these ancient ingredients were really... No, no, no. If, if there was an ingredient that, that we don't have fairly commonly, I, I wouldn't try to reproduce the recipe. So all the recipes in here, there are about 50 of them. 50. Um, a very doable, even the old ones, with today's ingredients. I mean, there's big and baby green pea soup. They assume it's one of my favorite recipes there. And it isn't pea time, but never mind. Um, you divide, you shell the peas, and then you divide them into the fat, um, oh, the crunchy ones that are rather pasty and the nice little tender green ones. And you um, make a, a, a broth that you sieve for, with the, 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 the tough ones. Um, and then you cook the nice tender ones separately and keep them whole and stir them in, into the main broth. And so you have two kinds, nice bright green baby peas floating on the top of your um, green pea soup. And little things like that that I found very attractive. Corn griddle cakes. That's a nice one. That's um, Amelia Simmons. And there's, I think it's hers, a very nice Indian um, pudding. But perhaps, yes, it's not. Mm. She has a lovely uh, raspberry fool which is simply fresh raspberries and cream and whipped cream. Oh. Now, you couldn't get simpler than that. Or more delicious. Exactly. Exactly. I know. And I had two more questions for you. Um, one is, I mean, years ago, I, I heard 
I would always hear the English can't cook. Um, and how, how would you, what, what, what's your comment on that? Not true. But um, it's because people have this vision of very plain food, which indeed um, traditional English cooking is usually very plain. I mean, it, it's full of roasts and grills and simply cooked vegetables um, and delicious puddings of all kinds and nice, some very nice pies. And the English still eat a lot of pork pie with raised suet dough and a top to it and a lovely stuffing that's very like a French pate inside, but different. Um, the problem is, is that the simpler the dish, the more difficult it is to do because any mistake or overcooking or undercooking or um, inferior ingredients or over, um, just not getting things just right. It's like music, a Chopin nocturne is one of the most difficult things to play. If you have a nice great orchestra joining in and filling in the gaps and lots of sounds together, like a vegetable soup, then it's, the chances are it'll all come out right in the end. Is that a bad simile? Uh, simile? You, you've disproven that that nasty rumor that I heard years ago. So, uh, and finally, you you have written more than thirty books, and do you have an, another one coming up? Yes, I do. Of course, I always seem to have something going on, but um. My grand, I have two grandchildren who live just down the road and three who live in Ukraine, but who come over often uh, because of my son um, married um, a Russian woman and they live at the moment in Ukraine. Um, and so, of course, I want, it's always fun having children in the kitchen. I mean, I made with one of them, Lucy, just two days ago, some nice cheese balls that just had three ingredients. And they're sitting in our freezer for whoever comes to call. Um, and so we try to do nice, simple things like that. The favorite, of course, is chocolate cake um, that only has, I think, five ingredients. Oh. And you can't go far wrong on chocolate cake. Um, and so I'm writing or putting together a book called Cooking with Grandma. Oh, wow. Um, and it, we've got it laid out. I mean, it's going to have 
I have a publisher possibly interested, and it'll have between 50 and 70 recipes, probably. Um, do you want to hear a little list of one or two of them? Yes. Perhaps I can remember, just let me just get the list. It's looking at me inside my place so I know what I have to draft next. Angels and devils on horseback. That's a nice thing for a child. The cheese puffs. Oh, parmesan frico. That's when you sprinkle grated parmesan cheese in a hot frying pan, nothing else, just in the pan, and it'll melt and make a, a lovely um, crispy wafer. We used to make those. There was a great fashion for them about 15, 20 years ago. Um, we are minestrone. Oh, well, yes, Leo likes doing this. Salt in boca. That's um, veal um, escalope with sage leaves, very thinly sliced prosciutto on top, um, and a layer of, part of what do you call it, um, plastic wrapper underneath and on top, and you bang it flat with a rolling pin. Now, which is enormous fun and, and, I mean, a nice macho kind of job in the kitchen. You can do it with um, butterfly chicken breast too. And then you just um, pat it with flour on each side and fry it in butter. A little bit of butter. Never goes amiss, does it? And then a bit of lemon juice, possibly to dissolve the nice little bit of pan juices you got, and there's supper. And then I'm, I'm salivating. Well, good. And uh, we ought to look at desserts, because everybody likes desserts. Oh, Ali, the, the, I didn't think Ali's appeared on screen. But I am she, here. <laughs> yeah, because she's masterminding the technical successes and oh horrors if there are any technical <laughs> I'm doing the recipe testing while in lockdown and it's been great. You know what lemon drizzle cake. Oh that's yeah my family recipe. It's a foolproof recipe and it's simply beautiful. It is it's delicious. Now has lemon drizzle cake arrived in the States? No. In British baking show. There you go. There I know. When, when I came, I said, oh, I've never had that. And Ali said, but you must have done. It's so common. And it's delicious. We'll, we'll post it. You can post it on something. Can't you, Ali? It's, a, it's an old family recipe, so I, I will send it to you, and I hope you will enjoy it. And then um, I'm sure that Scott and Kathy are able to do a post about it. We'll we'll put it on our website with a link. Yes, it is one of those things that if anyone comes round for dinner and you don't have a a cake, you just put it in the oven, 
And it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. It's an easy recipe. That falls into the category of desperation desserts. I've just made this. This is the Christmas pudding. Oh. <laughs> can you see? Yes, you can see the Christmas pudding. It's covered in plastic wrap, but it's, um, of course, going to be steamed. And it's held together with cheesecloth and just tied together. Um, that's already cooked five to seven hours. And then when I reheat it and reheat it, it'll um, be cooked another more, I think it's five hours. Um, there's enough here for quite a lot of people. It's actually and she, fl she flambes it at Christmas, so you get that whole ooh moment because it's set alight because of all the booze. And it, it's getting close to lunchtime here. Everybody's salivating. We're going to open it up to some chat questions. First, I'm just going to do it in the order that they came in so nobody feels overlooked by accident anyway. Um, prior to Hannah Woolley, were all cookbook authors men? Yes, in English. There um, possibly were some in German. I don't know of any in Italy, which is where the first cookbooks were written, by, but all by men. Well, actually, there's one French, Taiwan. Um, but so there may have been some in Germany, possibly Holland, but basically the first cookbooks by women were in English. So what was the title of the book by Lydia Child? <laughs> Lydia, can you look that up? I can't. Oh, it's in here. Goodness sake. I'll find it. Just a minute. Lydia Child. Oh, typical Lydia Child. The frugal housewife. <laughs> very direct, right? Well, uh, direct, but also very admonitory. Follow the rules. Do the right thing. Uh, one of your alumni, Gail Gand, asked, how many years did you have La Varenne? Oh, Gail, how are you? That's nice to hear from Gail. Um, we started in 75 and we closed in 2007. So quite a long time. Oh, yeah. Yes. Okay, somebody said, I know that uh, Marcella Hazan's son is continuing her legacy. Is there anyone that is continuing Edna's legacy in terms of updating or revising her recipes? Edna Louise? Yes. I have to say I don't know. Not that I know of. I was thinking perhaps it could be Scott Peacock. Yes, indeed it could. I assume he's still around. I believe he still is. Yes, um, absolutely could be right. Uh, who would you include in your second tier of women cooks? Oh, you mean? If you were to write, you, you know, go beyond the list of 12, uh, who, oh. who would be likely? I don't 
No. Um, probably a couple of recent cooks who've been experimenting with more ethnic cooking and ethnic ingredients. But I wouldn't have really, don't feel, oh, I would like to include so-and-so, what a pity I couldn't, about the historical cooks. The only one, but it, it sort of gets things in a confusion, would be Mrs. Beaton who, I mean, is an absolute model of, she's an encyclopedia, encyclopedia of information. She's amazing. Um, she's like Fanny Farmer, but you see, I can see you frowning slightly. Oh, no. Now, you know Mrs. Beaton? Sure. Um, she's the English equivalent of Fanny Farmer, though totally different. I mean, hers is a household book, and she tells you what you ought to pay the housemaid and um, what duties she should be undertaking and all of that. Um, and so, but it, I mean, that's for an English audience though it would fit quite well into the roster of cooks that I have at the moment in, in the book, because there's a big gap between um, Lydia Child and Fanny Farmer. Oh, yeah. Mrs. Beaton is the mid-1860s. Um, Okay, now here's a question that I think might be outside of the scope of today's um, topic, but nonetheless, I'll ask, and you can see, any pre-Columbian Italian cookbooks, meaning those without tomatoes or other New World ingredients, did the tomatoes replace something else similar, or was that a change in Italian cooking? I am not the one to ask about Italian cooking, but as far as I know, there were no major Italian cookbooks until Ada Boni, who is 1900. Oh, wow, that's late. Yes, very late. Oh, uh, somebody asked, when is your autobiography coming out? Oh, it's been published and it's called One Souffle at a Time. Aha! Aha! One souffle at a time. Uh, is there a recreation of Bart oh, sorry, Bartolomeo's kitchen as there is at Washington's Manor in England? Not that I know of. He cooked for popes. So, and clergy, cardinals, whatever. Um, it would need to be in the Vatican. That would be fun, wouldn't it? Yes, it sure would. Oh, by the way, um, talking about English cooking, uh, we're going to have a speaker in April talking about the food rationing during World War II and beyond. 
which I think kind of contributed perhaps to the reputation of English cooking. Oh, we'd had it already. Oh, because why do you think the English always went to Escoffier? And Escoffier was installed at the Ritz-Carlton on Piccadilly in the early 1900s. Right, but I think the post-World War II rationing, which went on to the mid-50s, really... Well, I I was brought up with that. Oh, sure, sure. Yes, I mean, I remember, yes, I'm 83, 82, almost 83. Um, So I remember it very clearly. And now we ate okay, but um, we were half a mile from the nearest farm. And so we had sort of unlimited eggs. We certainly had unlimited milk. And we got the farm to keep a pig. So every six months, we kill and we harvested. Died, <laughs> and we got half. And my auntie got half. What is Anne's other favorite cookbook that she kept? I kept quite a lot of things. I mean, I have, oh, 30, 40 old books. I have a treasured first edition of Mastering the Art um, that is inscribed to Mark and me by Julia herself. Hmm. So that is probably my next most treasured possession. And also what Julia says in it, it always makes me smile whenever I pick it up. It's poor liberty! (laughs) So do you have the Christmas pudding recipe uh, in any of your books? Uh, Yes, I do, but it's not a book you might be able to find. It's called Real Food. But Ali will put that on the where people can pick it up. Is that right, Ali? I can and send it over to Kathy and Scott. That'd be great. And somebody commented the first Sunday in Advent is when you make the Christmas cake. Oh, that's late. Oh my goodness. That's late? I have I cannot get into France now. Um, and I, and we usually spend Christmas down in the south where our son has a house. Um, and I have left, and they are marooned. Um, a Christmas pudding that is nearly two years old, and a Chris, two Christmas cakes. One is one year old, and the other is two years old. And they haven't been fed for nearly a year. And I keep these cakes going, you see, and they mature and get better and whatever with um, equal quantities of port wine and cognac. And I just fed these, actually. I had two here. Fed them last week. They're smelling rather nice. 
Now, somebody asked a question. What about Mary Randolph? Oh, now Mary Randolph, I am not good on American cookbooks. Um, I didn't include her because she was going to overlap with um, Lydia Child, but and I had too many, I would have got too many Southern cooks in the book. But she was a candidate for inclusion. Uh, what is the name of the place in San Diego that you referred to when talking about the Getty Library? Oh, um, it, it's not in San Diego. It's the San Diego. It's in L.A., isn't it? Sorry? No, no, go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's the Getty Library in um, Santa Monica. I think it's listed under Santa Monica. Anyway, it's at the Getty Museum. But also, San Diego Public Library has half of André Simon's cookbook collection. And André Simon was an Englishman um, who is long gone, but had a legendary cookbook collection, antiquarian cookbook collection, that sadly was divided in half when he died and half went to San Diego and the other half went to an unknown destination in Boston. And that is one of the food, foodie mysteries that needs following up. I drop that, Scott, into your in, in into your inbox. Wow. Um, then somebody said, I thought Anne said most of her collection was held at the Getty Library. It is now. And yes. you kept two favorites, Scopies, which she showed us. Yes. And then another, someone said in the chat it was Platina. Yes, that's this one. It's in Latin, hence um, he has an, um, another name, but it's also in Latin. There we are. Mm. Very early, 1530, this edition. But that is the first cookbook, um, first printed in 1474. That's cool. The British... Christmas cake would be our fruit cake, or we're talking in the American context. A very rich fruit cake. It has, but yes, it's a fruit cake. It has um, currants, um, golden raisins, mixed candied peel in large quantities in a basically pound cake base. Okay. What is your opinion, if you have one, of the Great British Baking Show? Oh, it's enormous fun. Oh, it's wonderful. 
is very well produced. One of the, of the um, young women whose um, trainee looked after our children um, and has put together many of the books that have derived from the baking show called Linda Collister um, knows all about the bake-off. It's enormous fun because the judges are not only amusing, but they're extremely qualified. So, uh, okay, because it's now Prue, but before it was Mary Berry. Do you think they're kind of equivalents or? Yes, I do. Uh, they're certainly equally knowledgeable. Um, and obviously they're different personalities, but not sufficiently different to totally skew the show. Cool, 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 cool. Would you agree that the British stopped using herbs in their cooking for a couple of centuries, and why do you think they did? Well, I didn't know that they did. I, I, I It was a question. I, I didn't. Yes, no. <laughs> I'm a little surprised. Um, because I'm not quite sure which centuries. Well, that's okay. What about Elizabeth David or Jane Grixon? Yes, I knew them both. Oh, lucky. Yes, I didn't know Elizabeth well. Elizabeth was, um, I always felt, was formidable. She was um, one of those brilliant Bloomsbury intellectuals that I could not possibly compete with. And I always took my husband because Mark knew all about the books. He could field in a way that I really could not or felt I could not. Um, the knowledge that Elizabeth embodies. Jane Grigson, I knew very well. She was, again, very good friends of ours. She came to stay with us when we lived in Burgundy. Um, we waited, went to stay with her in France. She was a wonderful, warm-hearted person. And, of course, as her Elizabeth, her books are definitive. I, I encountered Elizabeth David when I was about 18 years old. And I bought the book mm -hmm. Spices, Salts, and Aromatics in the English Kitchen. And I read that book from stem to stern and then again. Yes. Very influential in the direction I've kind of ended up in. It doesn't have herbs included, doesn't it? Bit surprised. Anyway. I would think so. <laughs> yes, well, I would think so too. Uh, did you have any encounter with Alma Locke, who wrote about French cooking from here in Chicago? No, I possibly met her. I mean, I've been to Chicago a dozen times, probably at least half a dozen anyway. But not to know her um, on a personal basis. And 
And somebody said, since you're working on a cookbook for children, did you have any favorite children's cookbooks? Oh, no. Well, I never... I was growing up as a child in World War II when I was young enough to want a children's cookbook instead of using my mother's. I do, I might even still have them here. Ah, yes. La pâtisserie est un jeu d'enfant. The two French ones. Lovely. Um, his father, Michel Oliver, his father, Raymond Oliver, was a three-star chef. And Michel developed, I'll try, there we are, these wonderful recipes for children, full of illustrations. There's La Cuisine and La Pâtisserie. Some of you must know them. Nobody's nodding. It's all in French, I'm afraid. But it's very easy to follow, because the whole point is that um, you can see the ingredients. Yes, that's nice. I couldn't resist keeping one. Oh, it's beautiful. Uh, yeah. Somebody said, speaking of Chicago, uh, the go-to cookbook for many years was Francois and Antoinette Pope's cooking school cookbook. Do you have any, did you have any interaction with them? No, I didn't. They I were like early television. Uh, they did, a, you know, wrote columns in, in local newspapers uh, and, and books. They were, even my mother went to their cooking school. That's lovely. No, I don't know that our paths ever crossed. And somebody made the comment that Elizabeth David is credited with reintroducing herbs to the to English cookery. Oh, well, that's an extension of that. Why the question about the, the, the herbs having disappeared from English cooking? I, I was not aware of it, but of course Elizabeth did write about her. I can't remember what it was called, but she wrote something about Are there any more questions? If not, I think we've perhaps settled everything that was asked of you. Scott? Well, I want to thank you so much for this enriching program. And I miss you back, back across the pond here. So you're welcome to come back home anytime. I would love, it would be lovely if it were open and yes. possible, wouldn't it? Yes. But it will be. It yes. will be. And meanwhile, has everybody had a good Thanksgiving? We, we were all alone. We were all alone together for Thanksgiving. So. I'm going to enjoy it with my two grandchildren and my daughter and husband tomorrow. Oh, wonderful. This is not an English Thanksgiving. You're going to celebrate yeah. late American Thanksgiving, right? Absolutely. Oh, wonderful. Yes, yes. Yes. But uh, thank you. And uh, I'll, I'll come over for some of the leftovers if I can. So 
it, it's so good seeing you again, and may our paths cross again and again. So thank it you. A lovely invitation, and thank you. Thank you, Anne. This was terrific, as Scott said. Great. And th thank you, Kathy and Ali. Thank you so much for helping with this program. It's been wonderful. And I've sent you both the recipes for the lemon drizzle cake and the Christmas pudding to share. And you know what? May I ask something else? If, Anne, if you could pick out a recipe from 12, uh, the, the, your, your book, uh, The Women in the Kitchen, and send, send that along too. Uh, we'd love to, to spread that one around too. Thank you. With pleasure. Any particular people? I mean, dessert or main course or soup or... You know what? It's I guess they're like your children. Pick one of your favorites, you know, if you can. Sure. You did fresh pea soup because you did mention it earlier. Yes, but it's not pea season. <laughs> the freezer always is pea season. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, you've got to have old and young peas for this. But <laughs> no, no, no. no. well, I'll find something. Yes. I'll find a nice dessert. Wonderful. Well, thank you again. And may our paths cross again after the pandemic and the vaccine. So take yes. care. Yes. And happy Thanksgiving, Merry Christmas, Good Happy New Year. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Yes. Happy holidays. Stay safe and keep well. Will do.